morning. You can find your seats. And if you would turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 12 this morning. If you would stand for the reading of God's word. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Dear Lord and Father, God, we come this morning, Lord, I pray that we hear these words, these two verses, Lord, that at first seem to almost contradict each other, at first seem to be uh, something that that seems to be unreconcilable, Lord. God, I pray that we understand, uh, Lord, that there is mysteries in Scripture that uh, we are not to unravel, but we are called to hold in tension, Lord. God, I pray as we look at these two verses, Lord, as we examine the deep theology behind them, Lord, that we would not miss the practical call that we see, especially in verse 12, that we are to work out our own salvation, that we are to pursue godliness and holiness, that we are to pursue Christ's likeness. God, I pray that we as a church would obey this command that you gave not only to individuals, but a church, the church at Philippi. be with us this morning. Help us to understand uh, what the calling truly is, Lord, and help us, Lord, to examine our lives and see where we can put effort, Lord, into uh, pursuing your son, looking at his example, walking in his footsteps. We pray in his name, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I think it was about uh, 15 years ago, uh, I led a missions trip to Poland. Um, I think there was about 15 of us that went. In fact, there's a couple of you in this room right now that uh, went with me or helped led uh, that trip. Uh, I was in my mid-20s, uh, just before going to seminary, before I was a pastor here at Country Oaks. I definitely was heading that direction at that point. Uh, it was a great trip, uh, very impactful for me and a number of those that were on the trip, uh, we saw people from Poland come to Christ, um, uh, rededicating their lives to Christ, many just growing in their faith. Uh, so it was very impactful, again, for me and a lot of those that were uh, on that trip. Uh, at the, the end of that trip, though, uh, while we were still in Poland, something happened that really bothered me. In fact, something happened the end of that trip that not only bothered me, but really confused me. Um, we had a debriefing where we had a chance to kind of share the stories, share some of the testimonies, some of the things we learned, uh, some of the things we saw. Uh, now, at this point in my life, I was uh, had enough wisdom to know that this trip as a whole was very much a, a mountaintop experience, if you know what I'm talking about there. Uh, an experience that uh, really often these mountaintop experience, just like Peter on the top of Mount uh, uh, Transfiguration, 
it's an experience that, that doesn't tend to last. It can be very impactful, and we see that in Peter's life, in fact. Uh, but they don't often produce lasting fruit. So during the debriefing, I was really trying to use that time to challenge our team and even challenge myself to remember that moment when, when we got home, when, when the excitement experience of the trip wore off, when we got back into the mundane routine of life, to remember the joy of seeing God move uh, in these people's lives and the experience, the joy uh, to seek God more earnestly with that joy and with that experience that we had, to, to work hard uh, when we got home to pursue holiness and, and godliness and righteousness, to be committed to as uh, we didn't organize this, but uh, I'm so thankful Ross came with a challenge this morning to be in the Word more, to be committed to being in the Word more as a team, uh, to, to being willing to wake up early to do and to be in prayer, to getting more involved in the church, to serve in the church, to uh, just pursue uh, the means of grace to grow in our walk with the Lord, to use that joy and excitement almost like a shot of adrenaline uh, for the Christian walk. Because I knew that true growth, true Christian growth, happens more in the day-to-day life than, than anywhere else. Discipline ourselves for godliness. We are to work hard to be more like Christ. Now, it was during this briefing, uh, while I was saying this and challenging the team, and again challenging myself, uh, that one of the leaders from Poland, it was an American missionary um, who oversaw and all the camps that were a part of, uh, stopped me, corrected me, and maybe even gave me a mild rebuke in what I was saying. He said that I was wrong to encourage the team to, to work hard when they got. Wrong to uh, tell them to exert more effort in their Christian walk, and then he told us really the exact opposite that we needed to stop trying so hard and instead just rest in God's grace. He said something that I had heard at that point over and over again in college, and uh, it's something I'm sure most, if not all of you, have heard at some point and maybe even have said, but he said this we need to let go and let this point, I was really confused because I knew that phrase, let go and let God. I also knew that Christianity was all about grace, not works. I knew that it was God who produced change in people. Lasting change comes from God. He changes our hearts. I also knew it was God who would make sure that we will persevere. In fact, Philippians 1.6 says this, and we spent a whole sermon on this verse, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what this missionary was saying didn't seem off to me. But at the same time, I was sitting there as he said that in my head, I knew that we were called to discipline ourselves. I knew we were called to work hard towards godliness, to take thoughts captive, to present our bodies as living sacrifices, to, that, that we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Our passage this morning, I mean, what about all the imperatives in Scripture? Commands to do this and to not do this. Aren't we called to work hard at fulfilling those commands? So, I 
was very confused, and it, it caused me uh, to think about it, and really it caused me to study this over the years. And, and here's the question I wanted to answer. Does our sanctification depend on us, or does it depend on God? Or here's another way of asking this question. Is it our responsibility to work hard towards godliness and Christ-likeness, or does our Christ-likeness and godliness depend 100% on God? You know what the answer is that I found over the years? Yes. We are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us. In other words, we are responsible to work out our own salvation, yet it is God who sovereignly works in us. We are responsible. God is sovereign. How those two truths go together is a mystery. But they both are taught in Scripture. Listen, there's a lot of mysteries in Scripture things that are true, but we don't know how they are true. In other words, God reveals them as true, yet he doesn't reveal how they are true. Let me just give you a couple examples. The Trinity, God is one, the Bible's clear on that, yet at the same time, God is three. One God, three persons, this is true, this is reality, but he does not explain how it's true. It's a mystery. Another example, one that we've spent a lot of time on uh, in the last couple weeks, of Jesus being truly God, divine, and truly human. How can he be both truly God and truly human? How can he be divine and human at the same time? That's a mystery. Yet it's revealed that he is both. How about this one? the dual authorship of scripture. The human author wrote Genesis, Exodus, Philippians, and so on. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's why they're named as. Yet, it was God who inspired them. In other words, I want you to think about this. When Paul wrote Philippians, and this is very obvious, he truly wrote Philippians. He's the author. He wrote it from his own personal experience, from his own education, from his own thoughts. The, the book of Philippians came from his own heart, and we see that as he, his heart loved this church. Yet at the same exact time, what Paul wrote was exactly what God wanted him to write. Therefore, God's the author. How's that work? I, I have no idea. It's a mystery. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are mysteries in Scripture. This, by the way, is a side note. This is not in my notes, but I got out early last service, so I just kind of just passed on that. There's mysteries in the natural world. We don't know how black holes work. In fact, we don't know exactly how gravity works. Yet we don't say they, they aren't true. Just because we don't know something doesn't make it not true. God hasn't revealed everything to us. There's mysteries in Scripture, and that's okay. Revealed as true, yet we don't know exactly how they are true. And, and this
this is the case for our passage this morning when it comes to our sanctification. Sanctification is after justification. We are saved. It's the slow process of becoming more and more like Christ, becoming more and more holy. It's what comes as we grow in godliness. Who does the work? Well, Philippians 2, 12, and 13 tells us. Look at Philippians 2, verse 12 again. It says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are called, we are commanded by Paul, inspired by God, to work. That's our responsibility. Yet, it is God who works in us. Again, remember Philippians 1.6, it's clear, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's an obvious tension here, a tension that the Bible does not try to unravel for us. It just says both. We are commanded to work, yet it is God who works in us. Those two truths we need to hold in tension. Otherwise, we'll get ourselves in trouble. And we've seen this in the history of the church. False teachings that have come out from men who have tried to reconcile this tension with human reasoning. Let me just give you two examples, two extremes. On the one hand, you have what is called quietism in the history of the church. This is the belief that really downplays the believer's role or involvement in the sanctification process and his growth in becoming more and more Christ-like. Growing in godliness is something God does, period. Therefore, the Christian should stop exhorting effort, stop trying, stop working. Instead, they should just surrender control to God. It's the sort of belief that produces the phrase, let go and let God. The believer's role in sanctification needs to be quieted before it gets its name. Passive. Today you'll find this belief typically more in the charismatic, mystical circles within evangelicalism or the church. So that's one extreme. On the other side, uh, the other extreme, you you have something that's called pietism. Now, pietism emphasizes personal holiness, piety, moral purity, and sound doctrine. Now, for most of us, that doesn't sound bad, right? In fact, not all pietism historically was, was bad or wrong. In, in some places, it was very corrective. Uh, it, it did a lot of good, in other words. Uh, um, a lot of good came out of pietist movements. Let me be clear, the pursuit of holiness and sound doctrine is a good thing, but many pietists fell into the trap of focusing on self-effort to the neglect of God's power and grace. So on the one extreme, you have quietism. Those who believe that sanctification has nothing to do with the believer, he is quiet, he needs to be passive, he needs to just uh, surrender to God, let or let go and let God. On the other extreme, you have pietists, who many overemphasize self-effort to the neglect of divine power. And here's where we need to go to Scripture to find the perfect balance. And that perfect balance is found in these two verses. Look again, 
Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good We need to hold verse 12 and 13 in tension, knowing that we are called to work, yet it is God who sovereignly and effectively works in us. And we need to hold this in balance, keep that tension. And here's why. And I think this is kind of amazing, something that really encouraged me this week as a believer, as someone that's seeking godliness. In these two verses, we find the perfect balance of work and rest. Verse 12, we are commanded to work, commanded to actively pursue holiness. In verse 13, we are called to rest because we know it is God who works in us. And even though I don't know how this is true, it is true because God has revealed it as true. J.A. Mortier writes this, There is a balance created between what we are to do and, on the other hand, what is already true of us. The Christian life growing in the likeness of Christ is a blend of rest and activity, not altering from one to the other, but a blend in which at one and at the same moment, the Christian is both resting confidently on what God is doing within and actively pursuing the duty of being blameless. know as Christians that rest is a good thing. Sleep is good. In fact, God created rest. He rested on the seventh day, and then not only that, he he made a day of rest for the Israelites in the Old Testament. Six days you work, the seventh day you rest. But that's not what J.A. Mortier is saying. He's saying this passage is different. He's pointing out a profound truth found in these two verses. Listen, Even in our work, our striving for godliness, we are to rest, knowing that it is God who works in us. Think about that. At the very same moment, we are to work and rest. And that's what our passage teaches. Our passage really has two main parts, two main truths that go hand in hand. Verse 12, we are salvation, verse 13, for it is God who works in us. Verse 12 is our responsibility, verse 13 is God's sovereignty at work in us. Verse 12, we are to work, verse 13, we are to rest. Verse 12 is our role in sanctification, verse 13 is God's role in sanctification. And even though we don't know how these two verses go together, we know they are both true. We are to work and rest at the same exact look at our passage this morning. We really only have time to look at verse 12, uh, which is our role in the sanctification process. Next week, we'll look at verse 13, which is God's role. And I'm going to remind us at the end of this sermon that uh, there's a danger there. Because if you only have verse 12 and you don't add verse 13, you're going to end in discouragement and despair. 
both these verses are, in, are needed together, so that's my plea to you to come back next week to hear the second part. If you, if you can't make next week, at least this, this week, read 13 over and over and over again and meditate on it. Because I'm just going to give you half of the story this morning. But as for today, uh, I want to look at verse 12. And, and in verse 12, we really see four different ways we are to work out our own salvation. Again, we are to work out our own salvation, for it's God who works in us. We see four ways we are to work out our responsibility. And, and the four ways are going to be the four points of the sermon. The example, the situation, the command, and the attitude. So let's start with the example. The first way we are to work out our own salvation is by being laser-focused at our example. Look at the very first word of verse 12. Therefore. Therefore, we know that that word tells us that Paul is continuing a thought, continuing an argument, Continuing a thought, in this case, the thought is Christ, it's Jesus. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we spent so much time on. Let me just read verse 5. It says this, uh, Have this mind, or mindset, or attitude, or way of thinking. That's what that Greek word means there. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And here's our example, verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we spent three weeks on this passage, so we're familiar with it. The amazing humility of Christ, of Jesus. As we have learned, this is probably a early church saying, and at least Philippian church or Philip church of Philippi, but I'm guessing most of the early church or the widespread hymn that many of the early churches uh, sang, uh, a hymn that is really so deep, a, a hymn that, that is so deep, it's a theological grand canyon in scripture. That Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even even gives us a chance to take a breath and reflect. To reflect on this, this deep truth or truths that we see in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. And usually when Paul writes something like this, he'll, he'll end with a doxology where you can just praise God for a little bit before you keep going in the letter. But, but he doesn't do that here. He, he starts in verse 12, therefore. Therefore, because of our great example, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And think about this. The reason Paul included this amazing, deep, theologically rich hymn in this letter was to motivate the church to work out their salvation pastoral plea. Have this mind among yourselves. Be humble. Be obedient. Now again, I have some extra time, so let me just take a side step here. This tells me something. If 
tells me that this passage that we spent so much time on is one of the deepest passages in all of Scripture. Yet it has a practical command to come down on us. I mean, I don't know how many times I hear something like, well, we, we need less theology and more like practical living. Or less doctrine and, and more love. But Paul takes one of the deepest thoughts you can think of as a Christian, of the incarnation of Christ, the hypostatic union, if you want to put fancy theological terms. And he uses that for a practical means to work out your salvation. And, and here's why I put, uh, bring this up. All theology is practical. All theology is practical. Because theology is a way of thinking, and our thinking will eventually come out in our Think of Romans 12, 2. Don't be, uh, uh, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. Paul understood this. And so he knew this deep theology would affect the actions of the church, so he puts it in the letter. Our example is Christ, who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We are called to obey like Christ. And we wouldn't know just how humble he was if we didn't know where he started and where he ended. We wouldn't know how, how strong of a command obedience was if we didn't know where he went. Death, and not just death, but death on a cross. We are called to keep our eyes on him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So the first on our great example. That's why I'll, I'll never get bored uh, of preaching Christ here. <laughs> because that's our example. And that's how we will be sanctified, by looking at him. Which brings me to my second point. We have the example, we have the situation. The second way we are to work out our salvation is to know the situations we find ourselves in. Look at verse 12 again. The first word, therefore. In other words, because of this great example, because of the example of Christ. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Remember, Paul's in prison. This is a prison epistle. He's really under house arrest in Rome, and he wrote this letter, which is a major theme of this letter. Paul's very concerned for the church. He's concerned that they're concerned for him, so he lets them know, hey, I'm doing fine. But now he's concerned for them. Often when a spiritual leader is not present, there's a temptation for those that are following him to fall into sin. Probably the greatest example of this is Moses and the Israelites, right? In the book of Exodus, we know this well. Exodus 32, the golden calf narrative. Verse 1 of Exodus 32 says this, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, he was not there. He was absent. He was up on the mountain. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. And we know this story. Aaron makes a golden calf, and the Israelites rose up early the next day and offered offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In other words, they got drunk and fornicated. Or they worshipped this golden calf like the pagans would worship a golden calf, like the Israel, or Egyptians the way they saw the, the pagans worshiping. 
Moses was gone for 40 days, and before he could come down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, Israel was in complete moral decay. Now, in Philippians, it's pretty clear that Paul had the story of Moses in his mind because there's a number of allusions to Exodus in these few verses, and I'll point them out as we move forward in the next couple weeks. Uh, Therefore, uh, Paul is calling the church, specifically this church in Philippi, not to act like the Israelites did. Instead, look at what he says, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Don't, don't be like the Israelites who, when Moses took off, they got into all types of sin. He's saying, you, you need to be different. Much more, you need to be diligent. to obey, but they were called to obey much more in Paul's absence. They were to be more diligent. They were to work harder. They were to be more aware of the temptations that were inevitably going to come because of the situation they were in. You know, I I am sure, because Paul writes about it, that Paul saw many churches fall into sin as soon as he left. Therefore, he is warning this church at Philippi to stay diligent. In fact, he tells them to be more diligent while he is gone. So, whenever I study, I get the whole week, and this is just one of the privileges of being a pastor. I I just get the whole week to really meditate on the passage that I'm studying. I I just think of examples and different ways this applies, and, and I couldn't get out of my mind high schoolers going to graduating, leaving home, and going to college, they should be more diligent to obey God when they do that. More wanting to find a church to be a part of. More thinking about how they're going to to stay godly when they leave home. They should be more diligent to obey God when they leave, knowing that there will be all types of temptations to sin being away from mom and dad. That doesn't just apply to high school. It really applies to all of us. We need to be aware of the situations we find ourselves in. Maybe it's a work trip. Away from our family. Maybe it's when your husband leaves to go to work. Listen, part of working on your salvation, or working out your salvation, I should say, is being aware of the situation that brings temptation. situation comes and it's unavoidable, we should be more diligent to obey. Paul says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. We should be aware of our weaknesses and what causes temptations in our lives. We should know the situations we find ourselves in and be, be more diligent to obey when we are seeing temptation coming our way brings me to my third point. We have the example, the situation, but what's important in this passage is that we understand the command itself. Third point this morning is the command. Look at verse 12 again. It says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only 
as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Now here's my question. What does it mean to work out your own salvation? It's important that we know what Paul is saying here. So let's start with what he's not saying. This doesn't mean that we are to work for our salvation. We are not saved by works. This doesn't mean we are not or we are to work on our salvation. We can't be more saved in a justification sense. The correct this is the correct translation. We are to work out our salvation. We are to work out your salvation. We are to work out something that is already true within. We are saved, we are a new creation. And we are to work out our salvation. Now I want to show you what I mean. I think there's a passage that's really clear on this, one we're very familiar with. If you would turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll start at verse 1. Again, we know this passage. This is uh, uh, Paul talking to the church. He, he's, this is who we were before we were saved. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, this is who you are, verses 1 through 3, but this is who we all were before we were saved. Verse 1 says this, and you were dead. That's who we were. Dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that Satan, who's the prince of this world, who is our prince, he just fills the air of spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, Paul adds himself here, we all, every single one of us, the, the Christian, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That was our nature, like the rest of mankind. This is who we were. Of course, verse 4 talks about what God did. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. In other words, we are a new creation. We were dead, now we are alive. This is what baptism represents, the old man dying. We are raised to new life. By grace you have been saved, verse 6 raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of works. There's that word. Not a result of works so that no one may we are not saved by works. We are saved by grace through faith. But here's the problem with this passage. I, I think most people, or a lot of people, stop at verse 9. And they don't look at verse 10, which is a very important, important verse. And it says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? good works. 
Listen, we're not saved by works. Verse 9 makes that clear. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, we are not saved by works, but we are saved for good works. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, or, or masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works. After salvation, we are to work. We are to grow. We are to glorify God with our actions. We are to work out our own salvation. And here's the amazing thing is, before we can even brag about the works that happen after justification, look at what verse 10 says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see the tension there? God prepared the good works beforehand. He saw them. Yet, we are commanded to walk in them. Our responsibility. There's the tension that we see in Philippians. So when Paul calls us to work out our salvation in Philippians chapter 2, or chapter 2, 12, he's not talking about our justification. We are saved by grace, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. What he's talking about Philippians 2.12 is our sanctification, the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should just walk in. Let me show you another place where we see this. Turn to James chapter 2 verse 13. Someone says he has faith, in other words, claims to be a Christian, but does not have works. There's no fruit in that person's life. Can that faith save him? That's the question James wants to answer here. Can true faith be without works in your life? Verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says uh, to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body what good is that so also faith by itself if it is if it does not have works is dead there's your answer verse 18 but someone will say you have faith and i have works show me your faith apart from your works and i will show you my faith by my says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. James says, I will show you my faith by my works. Neither one is saying works will save you. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, but faith is never alone. Faith will always produce works. Therefore, James is saying if there isn't works, then there isn't faith. And if there isn't faith, then there isn't salvation. 
salvation will always produce good works. Therefore, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I had a a pastor once tell me that James and Paul preached two different gospels. Paul preached that salvation is by faith, not works. James preached that salvation is by works, not faith pastor went as far as to tell me that that Paul and James didn't even like each other. The truth is that Paul and James preached the same exact gospel from two different angles. And that's because they were teaching to two different audiences. Remember the two extremes I talked about earlier, the quietists who claim we are not to work at all, we are to be passive, we are to let go and let God and just trust in his grace. And then you have the pietists who emphasize personal holiness, piety, sometimes the neglect of grace and divine power. Well, Paul often wrote letters fighting against people that were more like the pietists. Therefore, he emphasized grace through faith. James, on the other hand, wrote to a people that were more like the quietists. Therefore, he emphasized the works that faith will inevitably produce. Yet they both preach the same gospel. Salvation by grace alone, through faith. Listen, faith will always produce fruit. It's exactly what Jesus preached. Therefore, Paul commands the church to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. They are to work on their sanctification. To work on their obedience. They are to pursue holiness and godliness and Christ likeness. Not to earn salvation, but instead because of salvation. Because they are new creatures, God's workmanship, His masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should. me my last point this morning, the attitude, the attitude, the attitude we should have when it comes to our sanctification. We should work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, we should have a holy reverence for God, one that, that makes us take our sanctification any question about how much effort you are to put into your own personal sanctification, that question is answered by two words at the end of this verse. We are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Our attitude should be one of fear and trembling. Meaning, at the least, if this means anything, it means this, at the least, we should work First, we are to look at our example, Jesus, who 
was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He is our example. We should be focused on him. Second, we should be aware of the situations that we find ourselves in, especially situations that we know will bring more temptation, but we can't avoid them. We should be more diligent in those times and prepare ourselves. Third, we should understand the command itself, what Paul is saying when he says, work out your salvation. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. But that doesn't mean we, we don't work. Faith will always produce fruit and good works. Therefore, Paul calls us to work out our own salvation. And finally, the attitude we should have when we do this to our sanctification, we should do it in fear and trembling. We should take our spiritual growth seriously with fear and trembling, knowing that we worship a holy God and we are beautiful. Now, as I said in the beginning of the sermon, this isn't the end of the story. It's only half of it. If you only hear this sermon on verse 12, you're not getting the picture. We need verse 13. In fact, if you stop in verse 12, you will end in despair and frustration and questioning your salvation. We need 13 and hold those two verses in tension. So my plea to you is to come back next week again. If you don't, listen to it online. If you don't do that, at least read verse 13 over and over and over again. Remember, verse 12 and 13 go together. We are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but we are to rest knowing that it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, again, make sure you hear the second sermon next week as we look at the other half of this tension. Let's pray. say we're without sin, Lord, we lie, that we are still sinners even as we are saved and as we are slowly becoming more like your son, yet even in that there's grace. Lord, we turn to you, repent, ask for forgiveness, and know that you will forgive us and not. It would be unjust for you not to forgive us because those sins were with that knowledge and that tension that we see, Lord, that, that we are diligent to work hard on our personal holiness, that we seek you, Lord, with all that we have, that we see the example that you have given us in your Son, 